This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, All In With Chris Hayes, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, a Best of the Left activism segment, and The David Pakman Show. And remember that the choice to listen to this episode is a decision that should be made between yourself and your doctor. No one has the right to tell you what podcast you should listen to. Al Jazeera English just made a really good documentary um, in which they interviewed a state legislator from Ohio. This guy is a co-sponsor of a bill in Ohio to dramatically roll back the time in which a woman is allowed to have an abortion in that state. So he gets interviewed by Al Jazeera and he, he tells Al Jazeera in the interview that what he really wants is for there to be no legal abortion at all in Ohio except to save a woman's life. But then this is the important part. Watch what happens next. Watch what happens after he says that with the follow-up question here from the reporter. This is kind of amazing. Watch. What do you think makes a woman want to have an abortion? Well, there, there's probably a lot of... I, I, I'm not a woman, so I, I, I'm, I'm thinking now, if I'm a woman, why would I want to... Yeah. Some of it has to do with economics. A lot of it has to do with economics. I, I don't know. I've never. I, it's, it's a question I've never even thought about. Why would a woman want an abortion? I've never thought about it, says the man who is doing his best to ban abortion in Ohio. The sentence I'm about to utter is going to sound insane, but it is true. Republicans in Michigan have passed an initiative that would, in effect, require women to take out rape insurance. I know, I know. That does not sound like it could be true, but that is what happened yesterday. This tells women that were raped and became pregnant that they should have thought ahead and bought special insurance for it. By moving forward on this initiative, Senate Republicans want to essentially require Michigan women to plan ahead and financially invest in health care coverage for potentially having their bodies violated and assaulted. That was Michigan Senate Minority Leader Gretchen Whitmer, who revealed publicly yesterday that she herself is survivor of rape that happened two decades ago. And the initiative she was speaking out against effectively bans, bans private insurance companies from covering abortion as part of their standard health care plans, which means you would have to purchase separate abortion insurance in the form of a special rider. So if, say, you were raped and you need an abortion, too bad. Should have bought rape insurance ahead of time. Your standard Michigan health insurance plan cannot cover abortion under any circumstances. Eight states already have laws in effect restricting insurance coverage for abortion. Just one of them allows coverage for rape victims. And while most of them allow for special abortion insurance riders, an expert at the Guttmacher Institute told us today she does not know of any where they're actually offered. So even if you want to buy insurance to specifically cover the often unexpected situation in which you would terminate a pregnancy for whatever reason, you're probably out of luck. Now think for a minute about what the Republican Party is saying here. They are making it clear they are quite willing to intervene in the private health insurance market, not 
to make sure people have basic package of care, not to control spiraling healthcare costs, not even to make sure that poor people are getting covered. No, they will intervene in the market in order to stop insurance companies from offering coverage for a legal, constitutionally protected medical procedure. A party that does that is a party that is committing political suicide. And if you think that is hyperbole or doubt that, consider this. Even the right-wing governor of Michigan, Republican Rick Snyder, did not want his party to pass this into law. Snyder vetoed a similar measure last year, saying, quote, I don't believe it is appropriate to tell a woman who becomes pregnant due to a rape that she needed to select elective insurance coverage. And as a practical matter, I believe this type of policy is an overreach of government into the private market. But Snyder couldn't stop this initiative because it was introduced through a citizen's petition backed by Right to Life of Michigan, which got signatures from 4% of the state's voters. And so the law is set to take effect after 90 days with the countdown starting tomorrow. But there's one thing that could stop it. If opponents get about 160,000 signatures before that 90-day period is up, the initiative will instead be put up for a vote next November. And the last thing Republicans want is for this thing to go to a vote. And do you know why? Because they're forcing women to buy rape insurance. That's why. 90 days, 160,000 signatures. The clock is ticking, Michigan. Go get them. Recently, Texas passed uh, a number of anti-abortion bills, and it makes it very, very difficult for women in some parts of Texas to get access to a safe abortion. Uh, hospital admitting privileges uh, it were included in the legislation, and that basically indicates that a ho uh, abortion clinic needs to have admitting privileges from hospitals, but a lot of the hospitals are run by conservative officials, and they will not grant those admitting privileges. Uh, as a result, a number of uh, clinics shut down. And there are areas uh, like Rio Grande Valley where they do not have access to an abortion clinic. So uh, as a result, the Center for Reproductive Rights is uh, suing the state of Texas and this has gone through um, appeals, and right now a panel of judges from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit is hearing the case. Well, one judge uh, has decided that, you know what, having a 150-mile drive to an abortion clinic is not an undue burden for someone who wants to get an abortion. In fact, she says the following, do you know how long that takes in Texas at 75 miles an hour? This is a peculiarly flat and not congested highway. And she's referring to the drive from Rio Grande Valley to Corpus Christi, where they have an abortion clinic. So what's the big deal? Why don't you get in your you know, SUV and just drive there uh, one day and uh, you know, speed along, if you will, and well, ironically, that might endanger the unborn child, which she's obsessed by. Right, but, right. right. Doesn't seem that concerned about the actual born person. But, uh, and then the next, after they do the forced ultrasound and try to talk you out of it and do all that counseling, et cetera, uh, and then you'll have to drive back home and then drive there again to actually have the procedure and then drive back home. What's mm -hmm. the big deal? Now, 
What she uh, fails to keep in mind is there's a 24-hour waiting period, so you have to go to the clinic, you get uh, a forced ultrasound, you have to look at the ultrasound, and then after that, you have to wait 24 hours. You have to think about whether or not you really want to go through with the abortion, and then if you do, you come back, and that's when you do the abortion, right? So you don't just make one trip. It's 300 miles round trip, right? You have to do that twice in order to get the abortion. And on top of that, you're not considering gas. You're not considering the resources necessary to make that trip. And, um, you know, uh, if you look at the number of people that need abortions or want abortions, um, about, what is it, 42% of them are below the federal poverty level. Um, so as a result, or federal poverty line, as a result, they can't afford you know, the extra resources necessary to go through with this. I don't get it, but either Edith Jones can, so what's the big deal? Yeah. Reminds me of Rush Limbaugh, like, well, if you're poor, why don't you go to the fridge and get a sandwich? Yeah. Like, I got a nice car, I, I can go, that sounds like a nice try, why don't I do that a couple of times? Oh, you don't have a car because you're below the poverty line? You don't have the fuel to go back and forth? You don't have the money to stay at a motel near there? Sorry. Yeah, who cares? Oh, good. I didn't want you to have the abortion anyway. I wanted you to have an undue burden. And think about think about the ramifications of that for a second, right? So if you are wealthy or if you're upper middle class, you have the resources. If you don't want to have that child, then you don't have to. You can somehow get yourself to that abortion clinic. But the poorest of the poor just simply don't have the resources to do it. This does serve as an undue burden. So as a result, they will be forced to either have that baby or they will do something unsafe to abort that baby, right? And let's say they do have that baby and, and all of these conservative dreams come true. What are you going to do to help that woman raise that child? <laughs> You're going to shut down any type of governmental program necessary to help that kid uh, grow up to be healthy, right? But Anna, why would they do anything if the kid's born? At that point, he's no longer unborn. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions, so if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Shall we get to a, uh, another story about another moronic Republican? These guys, I, I, just, I, I just don't know what to tell you. Apparently, Congressman Bob Goodlatte, Republican from Congress, Virginia. Oh, I'm sorry, from Virginia. It was uh, engaging in a debate over an anti-abortion bill advancing uh, through Congress in a um, committee markup of the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act, legislation that would dramatically restrict women's access 
to affordable abortion care by imposing restrictions on insurance coverage and tax credits for the procedure. So, I mean, it's fascinating how tax credits become taxpayer funding when it comes to providing health services for women, but not when it comes to a uh, deduction on your uh, mortgage interest, or not when it comes to, say, a reduction in your taxes because you earn it uh, through speculation on the stock market. It's just fascinating, the notion that some people have that they're not on the dole if it's something that they like. 98% of Americans, I remind you, are on the government dole in one form or another. A tax expenditure is the exact same thing as a uh, subsidy or a tax credit. There's no subsidies in this instance that they're talking about. So good lat trying to make some argument that it's not just about my morality that I'm imposing on you, comes up with this bizarre notion, particularly if only just to even use logic on this. Um, there are three Americans uh, looking for jobs for every one job that exists. But he wants to say that this attempt to restrict women's access to health care is a jobs program. In addition, I would suggest that uh, it is very much the case that uh, uh, those of us in the majority support this legislation because it's the morally right thing to do, but it also is very, very true that uh, having a growing population and having uh, new children brought into the world uh, is not harmful to job creation. It very much promotes job creation for all the care and services and so on that uh, uh, need to be provided by a lot of people uh, to, to raise children. So, What are you talking about? <laughs> we are denying people the opportunity to babysit kids by allowing women to have abortions. This is just stunning. It's just stunning. Uh, they're just, oh, man. you got to believe that many women have abortions, too, because of economic reasons. Where of are they course. Gonna, where are they going to hire this, of these? Of course. Uh, well, with what money are they going to hire this, these care services? And it's unbelievable. Without afford, access to affordable uh, family planning services, uh, studies show women are less likely to be able to finish their, uh, their education, advance their career, achieve financial independence, or hire someone to take care of the kids.
In 1990, a total of four abortion restrictions were enacted in states across the country. And then it pretty much went along at that pace for much of the rest of the decades in the 1990s. There are a few spikes here and there in the late 90s. But in total, in that decade, in the 1990s, about 130 restrictions on abortion rights were passed into law in various states. These are new figures from the Guttmacher Institute. <clears throat> in the following decade, in the 2000s, uh, the number of new state restrictions on abortion rights um, got big and it was sort of a more volatile process. In total, there were about 189 anti-abortion measures put into place versus 130 the decade before. But then after 2010, the deluge. In 2011, 2012, and 2013, in the years after Republicans took control of lots of state governments across the country, after then, after the 2010 elections, more than 200 legislative measures to restrict abortion rights passed and signed into law in various states. More than 200 in just three years, 70 restrictions enacted last year alone. They did more to roll back abortion rights in the past three years than they did in either of the past two decades. A dozen states now have 20-week abortion bans. Half of all states have barred abortion coverage and health, health insurance. And, and according to a recent Huffington Post survey, over 50 clinics nationwide have been shut down or have been forced to stop performing abortion services since 2010. And now the question is whether the pendulum might be able to start swinging in the other direction. Take Virginia. Under Republican Governor Bob McDonnell, the legislature there passed into law the medically unnecessary forced ultrasound exam, right? Along with the trap law, which closed down clinic after clinic in the Commonwealth under the direction of Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli. But then, Ken Cuccinelli ran for governor on a straight anti-abortion male Republican ticket. And he and that whole ticket lost in the November elections. And women's issues like reproductive health rights were front and center in the Cuccinelli versus McAuliffe campaign. Well, now, in the wake of the Democratic sweep in the Virginia elections in November, abortion rights advocates in Virginia say they hope to roll back the restrictions that were enacted by the previous administration, telling reporters yesterday that they're readying a repeal of the forced ultrasound law, they're ready, and they're readying an expansion of reproductive services in the Commonwealth. So that's Virginia with its shiny new democratically held executive branch. In Wisconsin, Republican Governor Scott Walker and the Republican-controlled state legislature there cut off funding to Planned Parenthood. They shut down lots of clinics in the state. They passed a trap law ready to shut down more. The state legislature in Wisconsin was all set to pass another, pass another round of restrictions on abortion and specifically on contraception, including the Ask Your Boss law that would have made you have to ask your boss if you could pretty please have your health insurance cover your birth control pills. But that effort sparked one Democratic state senator, John Erpenbach, to declare that he would bring all-out hell to the Wisconsin State Senate if Republicans tried to push those bills through. Against that backdrop of promised all-out hell, it now appears that Republicans in Wisconsin are going to stand down on these new restrictions that they had been considering. The Wisconsin State Senate leader says they will not take up those bills after all. Pushback either worked or at least did not hurt in Wisconsin. And while 2013 saw a ton of legislative wins for anti-abortion advocates and Republican-controlled state governments, when the issue went to a vote by the general public in the great city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, that super divisive citywide all-out anti-abortion referendum in Albuquerque lost and lost badly. And that electoral loss for anti-abortion advocates came on the heels of the largest state in the county expanding abortion access in California, where abortion procedures can now be performed by more, more health professionals, not fewer.
It is 2014. There are gubernatorial elections on the horizon this year. Yippee! Several highly visible pro-choice candidates are running against staunchly anti-abortion Republicans, from Wendy Davis in Texas to Mary Burke, who's challenging Scott Walker in Wisconsin. Will 2014 be the year to roll back the abortion rights rollback of the past several years? Does this mean that things are moving back in the other direction? Will there be a significant pushback against the huge anti-abortion advances we have seen in the states in the past three years? I asked the question semi-rhetorically, but I think it's actually a legitimate, serious question. And that is, you know, operating on the, 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 the premise that the Republican Party does not want the government to be so large that it can fit into the smokestacks of the Koch brothers' refineries. It does not want the government to be large enough to fit into the offices of Goldman Sachs and regulate their banking activities. But so they want to shrink it down to the size where, I mean, Grover Norquist famously said, I don't want to destroy government. In fact, we used to have the clip of it. I don't know if you've got that. He said it on NPR to Mara Lassen. He said, I don't want to destroy government. I just want to shrink it down to the size of where I can drown it in the the bathtub, you know, make it small enough that I can drown it in the bathtub. And, or out of the drain of the bathtub or something like that. But it appears that what these guys seriously want, you know, whether it's Governor Ultrasound who wanted to to force an ultrasound sound wand up into the vagina of and against the uterus of every woman in the state of Virginia who wants to have an abortion, or whether and and make no mistake about it, that's forced. That's literally at the point of a gun if you object, and I think in most places they call that rape. Or whether it's Senator Obershane who wants to have Ken Cuccinelli's job, who suggested that any woman who has had a miscarriage should immediately, not not should, must, under penalty of going to prison for a year, must report herself to the local police department, not a hospital, a police department if she has a miscarriage. What causes these typically older white men to want to have such control over the reproductive functions of women. Is it some kind of just fundamental sexual insecurity? Oh, it's too small. Well, maybe I can pretend it's bigger by controlling these women. Is it that? Or is it misogyny? Is it just a you know fundamental hatred of women? The, the 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 first girlfriend they had broke their heart, or they didn't like their older sister, or their mom used to beat them. I, I who knows? I mean, or just you know, or is it even deeper than that? And I suspect it is. Frankly, my personal opinion on this is that 
women are the ones who have the genuinely sacred power. They bring life into the world. And when you look around you at the natural world, what you see is the celebration in nature, essentially of the feminine. Pretty much everything we eat, you know, corn, wheat, these are seeds, these are the eggs, these are the ova of plants. These are from the female parts of the plants. Flowers are the female parts of the plant, while the male part is the the pistols and the, what is it, the, the stamen is the female, the, no, it's the pistol is the, in any case, whatever it is, I can't remember pistols and stamens, but, but the flowers are, are there to facilitate reproduction. The, the fruits and vegetables that we eat, uh, arguably root vegetables aren't so involved in reproductive function, although what they do is they store enough energy that in the second year, a biennial plant, with carrots and potatoes and things like that, a biennial plant in the second year has enough energy stored in the ground that it can that it can throw out flowers so it can reproduce. So basically, the world is alive. The world, I mean, you know, the, the, the natural world is like a giant mother. It's this feminine power and principle that just drives everything. And men just... You know, the, what, what pollen does, what sperm does, what, what the male function does is it basically just flips that on in a way that, you know, moves DNA around and in ways that further the survival of spe- species. But, you know, arguably men are not all that necessary. In fact, the more advanced science becomes, the less necessary men become. And I think that that's the reason why you've seen these eruptions, and we're in the tail end of what I believe is a 7,000-year-long eruption of male insanity, of men dominating women, men dominating other men in order to dominate their women, war. I see all this stuff I see as insanity. And, and you look at the Iroquois Confederacy uh, here in in North America, Ben Franklin introduced 34 Iroquois elders to the Constitutional Convention in the summer of 1787 in Philadelphia, and they spent a couple nights up on the second floor sleeping there, and they blessed our you know the 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 people who the the men who had gathered to write our Constitution, and he said, and I'm I'm doing this from memory, so it's imperfect, but it's close to what he said. He said if and, and back then, ignorant savages was not considered a slur, so he was speaking highly of these folks. He said, if five nations of ignorant savages have been able to forge a bond that has lasted in peace for a thousand years, then certainly 13 colonies of educated Englishmen can do the same. It's Ben Franklin. Now, what Ben Franklin knew, but he didn't talk about, and Jefferson knew, and he actually writes about in his diaries, is that four out of the five nations of the Iroquois Confederacy did not allow men to vote. And they lived in peace for a long, long time. They had figured it out. They resolved their conflicts by playing lacrosse, literally. I mean, there's a painting just in the, in the National Gallery, just a, a few blocks from here. Huge painting. I forget the artist's name. He's a, a kind of semi-famous 18th century uh, painter, or maybe early 19th century painter, of an Iroquois quote, battle, 10,000 Iroquois, the men out there 
and it looks like a war, except there's no blood because they're playing. It's a it was a four day lacrosse game to to resolve a dispute between two tribes. It's really pretty amazing. So I ask you, what do you think? Why why are these guys so you know why would why would Senator Obenshane, who wants to be the Attorney General of Virginia, the, this Republican, why would he sponsor a law saying that if a woman has a miscarriage, she must report herself to the local police department within 24 hours, and if she fails to, she faces a year in prison? Why would he do that? I think there's something very deep in our culture that drives this kind of bizarre behavior. It's something that we need to heal. On the way home, we said hi and bye, Kentucky. Bizarre behavior in the key of the mouth. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Next up, a conversation about a new documentary after Tiller about the 35-year assault on the reproductive justice movement. George Tiller was a target of anti-abortion extremists. His Wichita clinic was bombed in 1985, and then at the age of 67, he was murdered at church. The death of Dr. Tiller leaves only four doctors in the country who are able to perform late-term abortions. There was absolutely no question in any of our minds that we were going to keep on doing this work. What really got me interested was when they started shooting doctors. I got five shots fired through the front windows of my office. Many, many times I felt so alone. How many times have you received threatening phone calls because of what I do? People call and I just hang up. When I walk out the door, I expect to be assassinated. Our goal is not merely to make abortion illegal, but to make it unthinkable. Late-term abortions, this is where everybody draws the line. They said I was an abomination and should be driven from the state. I immediately started getting death threats in the middle of the night. You don't give in because it only gets worse. If I just give up and stop doing anything after 20 weeks, some women may get desperate and do things on their own. It's something that needs to be done. What drives women to seek a third trimester abortion? Unless people understand what's going on for the woman, it's impossible to support it. guilt no matter which way you go guilt if you go ahead and do what we're doing or bring him into this world and then he doesn't have any quality of life you have choices they all suck sometimes it's been hard for me to feel that i could continue 
course you don't want an abortion. Nobody wants an abortion. She had a disease where she can't bend at her joints. You could be a stillborn. Mm -hmm. She's just too far mm -hmm. along. I can't help her. What's the right thing to do? What's really helping people? I just thought the other day, I can't retire, my God. <laughs> there aren't enough of us. That's the trailer for a new film, After Tiller. It looks at 35 years of attacks on abortion providers and just as many years of women having abortions anyway. It's about the men and women who continue this dangerous work and why they do what they do and the future that they hope for. With us is one of those doctors. She's Dr. Susan Robinson. Also with us, one of the film's two directors, Martha Shane. Martha, let's just start with you where your film starts. May 2009, I think I'm right. Mm -hmm. We saw the death, the killing of George Tiller in Wichita, Kansas. What's happened since in Wichita and nationally? Yeah, so after um, Dr. Tiller was murdered, his uh, clinic was closed. And so for us, the idea from the film really started watching that news coverage of the murder of Dr. Tiller and seeing how so often the media doesn't cover this issue correctly. You know, it's, it's always sort of a pro-choice talking point and an anti-abortion talking point and a controversial doctor was killed. And so we wondered sort of more about what Dr. Tiller's life was like. Um, did he have a family? What motivated him to keep doing this work after so many, year, so many years of harassment and threats? And so we started researching and we found out that there were only really four doctors who were openly doing this work in the U.S. And we're just shocked to discover that in a country of this size that the number would be so small. And, and then we started looking into who those people were and um, going out to meet them. Susan, um, tell us a little bit about your life, what your life is like, and do you remember the day when you heard what had happened to you? Oh, I certainly do. It was, sure. Um, I, I was at home, and one of my colleagues, Shelley Zella, was at work, and she called and she said, Dr. Tiller has been killed. I, I was... Uh, I remember that better than I remember when Kennedy was shot or when I heard about 9-11. Because what did it mean to you? Oh, he was my friend, my teacher, my mentor. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. He was a very important person in my life and I admired him hugely. Tell us what you do and where are you in the country? Now I live in California and I work in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I switch weeks with my partner, Shelley Sella, my colleague, Shelley Sella. She lives in Oakland. And the two of us worked for Dr. Tiller, and after he was killed, we looked for another clinic that we could join that would be interested in offering the service of later abortion. So that's what I do right now, is I spend a week at home and then a week in Albuquerque working in the clinic, and then I go home and Shelley comes. You use the term later abortion, and that's for a reason that the film drives home very beautifully. Uh, talk about who your patients are, why they need this abortion that's often referred to in the money media as late-term abortion and is the kind that states around the country these days are trying to ban, outright ban. Well, who my patients are, um, probably 20 or a little over 20% of them are people who have highly desired pregnancies 
and they have a late diagnosis of a fetal anomaly, well over the limit of most states. Um, everything seems to be going fine, and then one day something's a little funny, so they do a higher level ultrasound, and geez, things don't look right. Meanwhile, the pregnancy is progressing. Let's get you a fetal MRI. Two weeks later, they get their MRI, and oh, I'm sorry to tell you that your baby is never going to recognize you, will never walk, will never speak, and there's nothing we can offer you. And those people can come to Albuquerque and have a pregnancy termination. I would say another 30-35% don't know they're pregnant. And that seems extraordinary. A lot of people say, well, how could they not know they're pregnant? But people continue to have what they consider are periods, or maybe their periods were always irregular. Maybe they're a little on the heavy side, so it doesn't show. But p people really honestly don't know they're pregnant, and this may not be their first pregnancy. And then there's a group of young, young women who are so terrified to tell their patients that they just deny it to themselves and sort of hope it'll go away. Don't tell their mom until their mom finally looks at their tummy and says, are you pregnant? No. Then they go and get a pregnancy test, and by that time they find out that they're way past the limit of any state, and they're 13, you know. And then there are a small number of other strangenesses, like their partner was abusive and held them captive, and they had to finally escape to get an abortion. There are a significant number of women who have been saving for an abortion, but they're so on the edge that they can't keep up with the rising price as the gestation advances. Is there one story in the film that, you, that stands out to you, Martha, of a, a woman? One of the stories that stood out the most was a patient um, who came to the clinic from Chicago and she just had been waiting. She's one of these women who I think we don't think about enough, but who are really living on the edge, as Dr. Robinson said. And she had been trying to save up money and when she got enough money, um, then her, her son got sick, so she couldn't leave. She had to stay. She had to pay for health care for her son. And, then it, and so it was just sort of one thing after another. And you can see how with, when someone is living really um, in poverty, doesn't have the sort of support net, network they have as a single mother, that it's just incredibly difficult to get to a clinic. And I think what, you know, spending time in the clinics really... Um, pointed out to me is just how inaccessible abortion is. It's easy to think living in New York City where I live that it's so easy to get an abortion earlier in pregnancy, but in so much of the country that's just not the case. Not easier earlier in pregnancy and almost impossible exactly. later in pregnancy. Did you say only four clinics left or only four providers left that are doing later term? Only four doctors who are open about doing this work, about doing the later abortions. Are you ever afraid? No. Really? Well, that's not quite true. <laughs> somebody, somebody called one time when I was at the clinic um, and left a, a number of messages with our answering service it, detailing how she planned to kill me. Um, and I was by myself in the clinic, and that I was somewhat nervous then. I wanted to know where those phone calls were coming from. Were they coming from Albuquerque or someplace else? But most of the time, I do not walk around feeling fearful, no. You're in a particular battleground state on this issue now. Suddenly has become Albuquerque. Some of the folks who 
with the organization Operation Rescue were the protesters outside of Dr. Tiller's clinic in Kansas are now setting up a similar type of protest where you are. Yes, they moved to Wichita with the express purpose of putting Dr. Tiller out of business after he was assassinated and we moved to Albuquerque which happened about six months later they moved to Albuquerque with the express purpose of putting us out of business. So what is the relationship between the bills that we see being passed around the country, most recently Texas completely outlawing abortions after 20 weeks, no exceptions, notwithstanding that incredible 11-hour filibuster uh, on the floor. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship between the legislative assaults on a woman's uh, reproductive rights and the type of violence that you're talking about? Because some of those who were involved in the legislative effort says, well, we're the, the friendly alternative to having a war out there. Well, there's certainly, I mean, there's certainly a difference, but I think all of, for all of them, the goal is to make abortion either illegal or inaccessible, and there are different tactics for doing that. Um, and you know, like Dr. Hearn, who's in the film, he always points out that, you know, every person who's gone out and killed an abortion doctor has started out as a protester, protester quietly pre praying on the sidewalk outside of a clinic. Mm. So, um, you know, I think it's, it was really interesting for us to learn how differently the, the doctors handle um, those pro protesters and their different attitudes towards the protesters, but there's definitely some sort of connection there. It's a, it's a climate, you know, as Dr. Sell in the film says, in Wichita, there was sort of a climate of hatred towards Dr. Tiller and the work that he was doing. Takeaways from this film, Martha, for you, things that you discovered afresh. You say one aspect was you didn't really realize how rare abortion is, let alone later term abortion. Um, anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think that when people go in to see the film, and also for us making the film, I think the takeaway is really just that this issue is so much more complicated than you ever could imagine, and that it's really hard to um, to imagine what decision you're going to make unless you're in this another person's shoes. And you, Dr. Robinson? I think people think that they do this casually, that they didn't think about it, that they just put it off because it wasn't convenient. No, these are women who find themselves in intolerable circumstances and are willing to do anything to be not pregnant. Um, this is not a decision that they undertake casually. They are not just putting it off because they don't know, you know what to do. A very small percentage of them don't know right away that they want an abortion. The trouble is that they didn't know how far along they yeah. were. Why do you do this work? Did you grow up thinking, I want to be an abortion provider? No, I didn't even think I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I started doing it, well, I started thinking about it when the first shooting in Pensacola happened. And um, then when the Salvi shootings occurred in Brookline, Mass. We're talking the 90s now. Yeah, 95, I think it was. I said I am going to go to Planned Parenthood and do abortions. It made me angry. You were a doctor. I was a doctor and I was working in a place that actually did not offer abortion services and didn't want us to do abortions and I was oblivious to the whole issue but when that happened I went I said I'm gonna do that and, it, and if you don't like it you know fire me. Why? I just felt that doctors were gonna go running away and and when bullied, my response is to not run away, but to say, oh, yeah? 
<laughs> so that's I started doing it. I started doing abortion care then, and I found it very gratifying because you know, as a doctor, you're trying to reduce suffering in in the world, and you can reduce the suffering of every patient who walks in your door in abortion care, and that is not true in any other field of medicine that I know of. Every woman walks in at a moment of crisis, and you can solve her problem, and you can treat her with kindness and dignity and compassion, and make a huge difference to the way she feels about things. And for those women who are mourning, as you put it, a, a highly desirable or highly desired yeah. pregnancy that went wrong somewhere. Those women, uh, you know, we do everything we can to make it clear that we see her baby as a as her baby. This is if she's named it, we call it by name. Um, often, those people want to view the baby, hold the baby. We'll take remembrance photographs for the for her. Anything to give her something to walk home with, so she's not totally empty-handed. We work with a funeral home. Lots of people want to have their baby cremated. Isn't this all incredibly complicated, though, when you're at the same time saying women yes. have a right to terminate their pregnancy? Yes, but they, I mean, luckily those women do have a right to terminate it because they feel either that their baby would have a short, miserable life of suffering, and this is their one chance to do a good parenting act. This is their one chance to mother or father their baby is to not let it be born into a short, horrible life. And they feel it as a loss, as a death. It's completely different from the woman mm. who didn't know she was pregnant and didn't want to be pregnant and, oh my God, does certainly not want to be linked to whatever guy it was who got her pregnant. Which goes back to how complicated this is. There are more than two sides to this story. As a filmmaker, Martha, and I should say that you made this with Lana Wilson, your co-filmmaker, your co-film director, how did you deal with the pressure of feeling that you should be on one side or another, as it were, or working for a cause? Yeah, I mean, I think from the very beginning we felt like sort of we had heard enough of the anti-abortion rhetoric, and so we didn't feel ever the need to go out and sort of interview the protesters. We felt very confident in our just focusing exclusively on these four doctors and really making it a more intimate portrait of their lives. Um, and then as we spent more time with them, we began to realize how sort of nuanced their own views are towards abortion, towards the work they, that they do. You know, you see um, Dr. Sell in the film who says that she thinks of the fetuses as babies. So certainly not a pro-choice talking point, but a very real and honest accounting of how she feels. And you also see just how complicated the women's, the patient's feelings are towards making these decisions, despite the fact that all of them feel that this absolutely should be a right. They may still have complicated feelings of grief or loss, um, because of going through the experience, but still absolutely are certain that this is the right decision for them. Um, so I think in the end, it turned out that even within the clinic, things weren't black and white, that there is a big gray area and that's, that's really embraced.
you've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the documentary After Tiller. This week, reproductive health care access in the U.S. is marking the 41st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the seminal Supreme Court case granting a guarantee to women in every state that restrictions to abortion care could not be lawfully imposed before the point of viability. While still technically legal as long as Roe is presiding precedent, abortion has been regulated and restricted in 49 out of 50 states. Oregon is the shining exception where this legal medical procedure is left to patients and physicians. Currently, 87% of counties in the U.S. do not have an abortion provider largely because of new laws and the fever pitch at which they've been implemented since the Tea Party wave of 2010. The biggest provider shortage is for late-term abortions. There are only four doctors in the entire country who terminate pregnancies in the third trimester. Since the 2009 assassination of Dr. George Tiller, intimidating providers and communities with clinics has been easier for anti-choice groups, leaving patients in distress and without care. Patients feel alone and helpless because of the stigma surrounding late-term abortion and the polarizing way it is depicted by opponents, the media, and even some reproductive health advocates. It is because of this climate that After Tiller, a documentary screened at Sundance in 2013 and currently being shown in cities across the country, is so important. Filmmakers Martha Shane and Lana Watson tell the story of these four providers, why they are passionate and, at times, conflicted about their work. Patient stories are told by the patients, whose circumstances range from basic lack of access to early abortion care to wanted pregnancies with fetal abnormalities or health concerns for the mother. Done with diligence and respect and acknowledgement for the moral aspects of late-term care, no matter your position on abortion, you will feel the issue in a different way after seeing this film. Shane and Wilson do Q&A panels following most screenings, a list of which can be found on their Facebook page and at aftertillermovie.com. The discussions are often as thought-provoking and moving as the movie itself. If you can't make a screening or there isn't one on the calendar near you, After Tiller is currently available to rent for UK residents via iTunes, and US residents should have it in their iTunes stores February 25th. If we are to have a real conversation about reproductive justice in this country, we must move beyond anecdotes, sound bites, and slogans. The implications of legal restrictions on abortion care and the effect they have on real people must be considered and understood. The After Tiller filmmakers have provided us with a unique opportunity to begin that process. So see the film yourself and encourage others to do the same. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Another story related to legal decisions and social issues, as MSNBC and NPR are reporting, the Supreme Court is now considering the legality of abortion clinic buffer zones. If you haven't heard about these buffer zones, buffer zones are, it's kind of, as the name says, it's an area around an abortion clinic beyond which protesters must stand. It's a common thing for Planned Parenthood clinics and other clinics, which, by the way, mostly aren't doing abortions. They're mostly doing STD tests and birth control and, and you know, such other things. But they do do some abortions. You have to stand at least a certain distance from, from the clinic. Colorado has an eight-foot 
floating buffer zone. And the Supreme Court 14 years ago upheld that to protect patients and staff and kind of prevent harassment from happening. Now, in Massachusetts, there is a 35-foot buffer zone from the entrance of a reproductive health care facility where abortions take place. The zone is clearly marked with a yellow line, Lewis, and the Supreme Court is going to decide whether this is constitutional or whether it is a violation of people's right to really have unfettered free speech. The lead plaintiff is Eleanor McCullen. She's a member of the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue and also a part-time prison chaplain. She looks kind of like a cheery grandmother, and what she does is stand outside uh, Planned Parenthood clinics in Boston two days a week for the last 13 years and counsel women against going inside, ideally, and talking to her instead to prevent abortions. Now, she says the buffer zone violates her First Amendment rights and prevents her from communicating with complete effectiveness. She says it's America. I should be able to walk and talk gently, lovingly, anywhere with anybody. Now, Planned Parenthood in Boston says 90% of what we do is primary care, contraception, cancer screening, and gynecological services, not abortions. 10% of what we do is abortions, but we still have these people outside all the time, and we do have a need for security. By the way, two personnel at that clinic were killed by a gunman in 1994 who also wounded five others. Lewis, when I think about this idea of buffer zones, if you were going to eliminate the 35-foot buffer zone outside of these clinics, you have to eliminate the 150-foot buffer zone around polling places beyond which people holding campaign literature have to stand. You have to stay away from the buffer zone around the Supreme Court for people holding signs trying to uh, get their message heard or seen regarding what is being discussed inside. I think that it would be improper to discriminate specifically when it comes to a buffer zone around an abortion clinic and not so many other places in this country. Right. And you can even get into the details of, of land ownership and, well, where does your jurisdiction end if you own this building and things like that. But it seems to me that if these protesters are still in plain sight, 35 feet is not much at all. Uh, you know, I don't think there's much harm being done. This is the hypocrisy of the extreme radical religious right. They think that God specifically, their God, and no other gods from other so-called fake religions would be able to do this. Their God has given them the right to force their beliefs on everyone else in this country, and even the slightest attempts to prevent them from doing so in exactly the way they've determined they need to is labeled as some kind of an affront to their uh, ability or right to practice their religion, freedom of religion, even saying Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas to some members of the radical right, Lewis, is considered some kind of an act of war, and, and actually the term war is being used all the time when something like Happy Holidays is said. What a double standard. What would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. 
So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like. Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course, that's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What do you put pictures up of yourself at home too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out the David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. The Supreme Court is poised to hear arguments tomorrow on whether buffer zones around abortion clinics violate protesters' rights to free speech. This comes as the court declined yesterday to hear an argument to reinstate Arizona's ban on abortions after 20 weeks. Elise Hogue is the president of the National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League, NARAL, uh, NARAL's annual Who Decides the Status of Reproductive Rights in the United States Report just came out a few hours ago and it gives america an overall grade of d for support of reproductive rights let's start there elise what's what's happening right now in this country uh, according to your findings you know what we're seeing is a political trajectory particularly at the states that's just completely out of whack with the american where the american people are we live in an overwhelming pro-choice country seventy percent of americans actually believe that Roe is the right uh, decision for America and that they support women's reproductive freedom and yet increasingly we're seeing an uptick in state houses passing regressive laws that restrict women's right to choose What's makes it harder on them and it's um, you know we're, we're gonna see a tide turning and we're already seeing the tide turning because it's just too far outside of the mainstream least, of where America what's is. What's behind this uptick that you just mentioned? Uh, you know, it's really interesting. I think a lot of it is that we're seeing state houses actually having been seized by Tea Party extremists who are sort of obsessed with the idea that women's reproductive freedom needs to be taken back to the 1960s. And, you know, what we're seeing is that when that's put to the test, when they're forced to own the decisions that they're making legislatively, they lose at the ballot box. We saw that in the Virginia governor's election, which is really important when we have 36 governors up for election in 2014 and we certainly saw it in Albuquerque where voters resoundly defeated an abortion ban the first one at the municipal level the Supreme Court as you know has not taken up a uh, an abortion case since 2007 um, I believe is that a good thing or a, a bad thing for for your organization as far as it's concerned you know what? We think the law as it stands is critically important to protect women and doctors. It is not such distant history where we have seen doctors killed, in the case of Dr. Tiller in Kansas, in the pews of his church. This, The anti-choice movement has a very long history of extreme violence and harassment towards women. And this buffer zone has been critically important to keeping women and doctors safe. So we seriously hope that the court is going to decide in favor of women and doctors um, and not with the anti-choice extremists on this one. Erin in Philadelphia. Quick note, it's spelled E-R-I-N. I just wanted to call in about some of the discussion that's been going on in the voicemails about race, stop and frisk, 
And some thoughts that I've had about that, especially when uh, in light of one of the This Week in Blackness segments that was played uh, on the show a couple episodes ago about race and racism. Um, it's interesting to me, uh, living in Philadelphia, we have uh, a black mayor now, Mayor N- uh, Michael Nutter, and a black police commissioner, Charles Ramsey. But we also have an active stop and frisk program, which, like it does in most other cities, tends to target young black men and black teenagers. Um, plus, you know, it's made national news a few times, this idea of so-called flash mobs, basically uh, young black youth um, coming down to Center City, causing trouble as young people often do when they congregate in large groups, and it just gets out of hand, and it's really... Um, yeah, and it becomes you know, national news. Oh my gosh, look at these teenagers causing riots in downtown Philadelphia. And the, the response that comes back to that from the police commissioner, from the mayor, and it made me think about something that they were saying with uh, certain folks like uh, Bill Cosby, who you know is seen as lecturing uh, other black people, or you know, Chris Rock's famous... Uh, dichotomy between good black people and a word that I'm not going to say. And, you know, it makes me think about the way that race and class are just linked inextricably in American culture, where um, someone like a mayor, a police commissioner, uh, actor, entertainer, you know, they have class privilege that a lot of other black folks, especially in a poor city like Philadelphia or Camden across the river, don't have, and I wonder to what degree these men are either using class privilege defensively to say, well, I'm a higher class, this couldn't happen to me, or if it's being used offensively in the sense that if I deploy my class privilege, if I put it out there that I am a well-to-do person, that it might shield me in some way from the negative effects of racism. And so... I can put this out and say, yes, we're stopping and frisking, but we're only stopping and frisking this type of, you know, person who, while they overwhelmingly happen to be black, also, oh, but they're the drug dealers, they're the gangbangers, and so, you know, they're not my kind of black person, and I'll admit, I'm a white woman, I'm not really sure about all these dynamics because it's not the culture that I go around in every day, but it was just something I was thinking about, and then obviously... You know, this sort of use of class privilege to mitigate racial racial, uh, disprivilege. I'm not sure I actually know the opposite of that word. You know, it breaks down at some points where you have the young man who was arrested trying to buy a belt in Macy's, Forrest Whitaker being hassled in a store in New York, Um, Professor uh, Henry Louis Gates being arrested for attempting to break into his own house. And again, it's, it's these sorts of situations where class no longer protects these people and it it really stirs up conversation so those are just my thoughts um not really uh sure if that makes sense to other people but i hope that uh maybe it will spawn a little bit more conversation thanks so much for the show jay Hey, Jay, it's Tate from PG again. This is a hard one to get my mind around, but uh, I'm going to give it a whirl. So um, I'm calling to response to Chris from Colorado Springs and your response to mine. And I have to agree with you guys. I I think that 
people do avoid certain communities and neighborhoods out of fear, you know, fear of getting shot, fear of getting stabbed or whatever. And uh, this goes full circle. It comes back around to Rob's remark in the first place where, like, you get on a soapbox and you say that these policies are wrong with, you know, like, uh, how can a cop stop a guy for being black or brown? And then, you, you know, like, almost an amazement, like, you know, like, oh, how, how can that, how can that be? But then, like, you avoid certain neighborhoods and communities out of fear that you're going to get shot and stabbed. So it's, it's almost comical, but like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not ignorant. I know that um, economic disparity does translate into higher crime, but for the most part, Broke people just live within their means or and, and cope with what they have. They have to humble themselves. For the most part, in our communities, we're not savages. Like, you know, like, you're thinking, like, crackheads just popping up out of the... I mean, it's, it's a tough one, but I guess that's where I'm coming from. I, I like to hear somebody else on this just because my mind is spinning off of it. All right, take it easy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. First of all, I want to uh, follow up on the Polar Bear Plunge fundraising. Uh, more donations have come in, so I want to uh, thank some people. Donations are now up to uh, 46% of my goal of $1,500. Uh, this, of course, is raising money for the Chesapeake Climate Action Network organization that I used to work for. So in less than a week now, I'm jumping into the freezing cold Potomac River, and I'm hoping to reach that goal of $1,500 before then. Uh, so to that end, I want to thank, there was another anonymous donation, uh, Peter Block, Elizabeth Roblicka, Mike Warford, Michael Wagman, and Leslie Behan have all donated, uh, bringing the total up to uh, $685, like I said, 46% of the goal. And so th you know, th this is the last stretch. If you're interested in supporting, please do just go to, uh, frankly, just go to bestoftheleft.com and right at the top is a big banner that says Polar Bear Plunge. You'll click through. It'll go right to my fundraising page. That's the easiest way to do it. Otherwise, you can learn more about the event at keepwintercold.org. Uh, so now I, I want to follow up on, on you know, this continuing conversation. And the thing that rang most true for me from what Tate was saying was that he's having a hard time wrapping his mind around this because boy, am I right there with you. I, I've been struggling with this, trying to, trying to get a grasp on it. And, and you know, I, I can hear it coming through in his voice. He's feeling similarly, just like, just trying to figure out what, what does all this mean? You know? And, and I think I had a little bit of a breakthrough today uh, that will help at least it, you know, I haven't solved the, the question by any stretch, but what I often find when there's a conversation, usually on the show like this, where I just can't quite wrap my mind around it, I can't quite, you know, come to the right conclusion, uh, you know, something that feels good and solid, I find that the premise was a little bit flawed, and that when you change the premise a little bit, things start to fall into place uh, better. So the premise that began this conversation about, you know, white people talking about how, you know, there shouldn't be policies that discriminate against black people, but then they, you know, don't go out into predominantly black neighborhoods very often. That, that was said to be hypocritical. And my instinct was to disagree with that. I thought that I don't, 
I don't think hypocrisy is the right charge, you know, and so I, I, I disagreed with that. But I didn't go into any, any, you know, great detail on the subject. But I think that that's where we went wrong. I think, I think that there is an absolutely valid conversation to be had here. But hypocrisy is just not the right frame that we should be looking at it from. So what I do think is, is more correct is, is rather than talking in terms of hypocrisy, you know, a, a person says one thing but does another, we can talk pretty clearly about the ideas of actions being good, better, and best. So just as a for comparison's sake, uh, we can talk about environmentalists. So if a person who you know cares deeply about the environment thinks that climate change is the most important issue to humanity, are they a hypocrite if they use electricity that is generated by you know carbon-based fuels? I would say no, because the society we live in basically means that it's incredibly difficult to get away from that. So, you know, being passionate about the subject is good, caring about it is good. But, you know, if you're still using carbon-based fuels, it may not be hypocrisy, but it's not great. Now, what would be better is if that person, you know, converted to, you know, a solar house and did, did whatever things they could to reduce their carbon footprint. That would be better. Now, you know, the best would be like someone who lives completely off the grid, uses 100% renewable energy, and spends all of their time campaigning for the environment. You know, it doesn't get much better than that. So there are definitely standards of, you know, good, better, and best, but none of them are hypocrites. You know, if just because they're not doing as good as they could doesn't mean that they're a hypocrite. So that's, I, I think, basically where we went wrong in the discussion of race and neighborhoods is, is that hypocrisy was just not the right frame to see it through. But we all sort of knew, we had this instinct that there's something there. There's something to be discussed. And it sounded like we were dis disagreeing because I said that I didn't think that hypocrisy was right. But no one could quite put their finger on it. And so I, I, think, I think that's, you know, closer to the mark anyways. And then additionally, what's important to understand is that, you know, the reasons white people don't go to black neighborhoods is far more complicated than racism. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. Some people are racist, so they don't go to black neighborhoods because they're racist. Some people aren't necessarily racist. They don't see themselves as racist. They, they try not to be, but they have, you know, a, a fear of neighborhoods like that because they think, well, you know, people are in, in poverty, they, they're desperate, or at least some of them are, obviously not all, but, you know, maybe the, the chance of being attacked is, is greater because people are, you know, in more desperate straits. And so there, there's a fear that is legitimate, but very likely overblown. We'll, we'll put it that way. And so, we, you know, we discussed that. Chris from Colorado Springs called in, talked about it in, in, in terms of, you know, most, mostly converting the conversation about race to a conversation about class and, and saying that, look, look, like, there's a legitimate discussion to be had about whether or not it is as safe to walk through a poor neighborhood as it is to walk through a middle class neighborhood. And so, you know, that, that's not a totally illegitimate position to take. Now, the other things that haven't even uh, been talked about is simple feelings of discomfort, frankly. I mean, this is something that applies to everyone in the world. People are comfortable with those who they are most similar to. I would be incredibly uncomfortable if I went to a restaurant where a standard entree was $80. I would feel like everyone's looking at me. What am I doing here? They know I don't belong. And, I, you know, I wouldn't feel welcome. 
And so it's it's not you know terribly hard to understand how you know if if you as a white person go to a neighborhood full of black people that depending on sort of the vibe you came across if there was a feeling you know people maybe are looking at you hey what you know what's this person hey uh, white people don't come to our neighborhood what's this white person doing here if if that feeling is there and i'm not saying it necessarily would be but if it were then that could be uncomfortable for sure so I think it's important for people on all sides of this discussion to understand the complexities of the emotions coming from all of the other people in, in the discussion. Uh, you know, the sort of thing that would be discussed most on on this show would be, you know, the importance of, frankly, white people understanding that predominantly black neighborhoods that are predominantly more economically depressed aren't that way because somehow black people are inferior and incapable of making enough money to make their neighborhoods look good. But no, it's they're the institutional forces of racism that keep black people down in a way that prevents them from making as much money as white people on average, of course. And, you know, it, it, it's those institutional forces. And so in reverse, sort of in the mirror, it's also important for people who live in those neighborhoods to recognize that it's not like all white people don't come to that neighborhood because they're racist. Some are. <laughs> But some have more complicated feelings about it. Some elements of fear, which are some legitimate and maybe overblown, but, you know, they're there anyways. And some just levels of discomfort. I mean, frankly, most black people will understand this as well or better than white people because they're surrounded by people who don't look like them all the time. If you live in, in neighborhoods or work in neighborhoods full of white people, well, then, you know, as a black person, you're going to experience that you know, some level of discomfort of being around people who aren't like you. Or just if you look at the media, well, then that's all you have to do to be completely surrounded by people who don't look like you. And so, you know, that discomfort is a real thing. And people tend to gravitate towards those circumstances where they're most comfortable. You know, I, I wouldn't go hang out at a bar with a bunch of college kids because I wouldn't be comfortable there either. You know, it's not it's not all about race. It's, it's about a whole really complicated mix of things that you know it, it all it all comes together so again i just hypocrisy was the wrong frame but that's okay it was very close to being right because pointing out that you know anyone who cares about a given issue could do more to help that cause is absolutely right and that's the reason why we have activism segments on this show you know everyone could always find a way to do more but not doing more doesn't necessarily amount to hypocrisy. And the reasons that a person may have for not doing more are often going to be a lot more complicated than they first appear. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So Coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own
see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our own sad stories and forget who it is we're for.